Well, it is a really beautiful day today. You get to come and to worship the Lord and be thankful for that. If you're a guest, we're glad you're here. Hope you know you always are welcome to be a part of our church. You're watching online. We're glad you are watching as well. I'm David, and I am uh, the pastor of the church. And uh, it's good to be here uh, today. We live in a time, we live in a world where we like things to be real. We like things to be authentic. You know, I mean, the legitimate is what we want and what we crave. And, and we live in a time in a culture where we can spot something that is fake. We're surrounded by fake all the time. We're surrounded all the time by what is phony. And there's really nothing worse than, than coming to a church or, or being connected to someone who, who's a Christian or calls us a Christian and seeing what is phony, what is fake, what is not real. To see a church or to see a, a preacher or to see a group of people who are just, just like everyone else, not in the sense that they're normal, but in the sense that, that they're worldly, that, that they have the cares of the world, the things of the world where they, they talk about one thing, but they live another way. They act sometimes like they're, like they're something special when really there's no difference in us, and that's the whole thing. We, as a follower of Jesus, I'm really just like everybody else. The difference in my life is the fact that I've been changed by Jesus, and I need to live that way. I need to be authentic. And we live in a world where all too often we aren't real. We're not legitimate. We pretend to be something we're not. And that causes people to look and see that in Jesus, to question why follow Christ? Why be one of them when there's nothing real about them and there's nothing real about Jesus? So from the month of October, I want to talk to you about the authentic Jesus, that Jesus is the real deal and what makes him authentic. And I'm going to begin today this whole series with a question that was asked about Jesus, that the people in the time of Jesus asked about Jesus. And the question is this, who is this? Who is this? In reference to Jesus. And in a few moments when we come to Luke chapter 5, it's a story that is found also in Mark chapter 2 and Matthew chapter 9. But I'm going to begin this entire series with a statement that I hope will kind of direct all of our thoughts about Jesus for the month of October, and it is this. For Jesus to be considered the Lord or the Messiah or the Christ, the Savior, whatever, he would need to legitimately do something only God could do. Think about it. Jesus was a man. There's no question. He lived. Those who say Jesus never lived on this earth are totally one. They're totally the minority. Even, the, even those who reject him as a savior will know that he lived. And that's the whole thing. He was one of us. But if it's one of us, for him to be the Lord, that is God, or to be the savior of our souls, which is God, then he would need to do something authentic, something real, something legitimate to prove that. He would need to do something only God can do. And so in the message today, I'm going to ask two very simple questions. They're very similar. But there is a difference. And the first question is this. What would it take to follow Jesus? To people 2,000 years ago, what would it take for someone back then to follow Jesus? And understand 
the world 2,000 years ago, we need to understand the religion of that world. You see, everybody back then was religious. There were no atheists. There were no skeptics of religion. People were all religious. In fact, most people in the world, the vast majority, all but a handful, were so religious, they worshiped multiple gods. They worshiped male gods and female gods in the entire world, even in the Roman Empire, in the Greco-Roman culture. The Greeks had their mythological system. The Romans had theirs. They were very similar. There was a lot of overlap. In time, Romans, they worshiped their ancestors. Eventually, some would worship the emperor. I mean, they worshiped everything but the one true God, the real God. There's just a small group of people that worshiped him. They were called the Jews, and they took their religion very seriously. The problem with the Jews 2,000 years ago when Jesus came into the world is that their faith, their expression of worshiping God really wasn't the same as you find in what we call the Old Testament. If you go back to the Old Testament, as hard as it is to understand, as difficult it may be, it's really quite simple. There was a God who revealed himself to this man named Abraham, and he chose Abraham to be the avenue through his descendants of his grace. And in his grace, it was completely unearned. He delivered Abraham and he saved a group of people throughout history that would be his eventually to save all of mankind. And the way the person experienced that salvation, the way that person experienced God was through their faith. They had faith in God. And the evidence of that faith was their obedience. They did the things God asked them to do. And that was the relationship that God had with his people Israel. But you come to the New Testament and the Judaism that you see in the time of Christ, isn't like what you find in the Old Testament. I mean, yes, there was Yahweh, and yes, they had their scriptures, what we call the Old Testament, the law and the prophets, and there was still a temple there. The temple was gorgeous. They had sacrifices, which you always had, but it was different. For now, they had become a system, a system of rules and regulations to see the authority in their life just simply wasn't God, simply wasn't the Old Testament. The authority was the tradition or the oral law, or the tradition of the elders. It's what the elders, the religious leaders, for decades had taught about the law. It wasn't just the law, it was their opinion, their their understanding, their interpretation that had become their authority. And that had become what they followed. I mean, there was the temple, and there were religious leaders at the temple, the Sadducees, which you don't see in the Old Testament. And the Sadducees were the aristocracy, who were the keepers of the temple. They were thoroughly corrupt, by the way and completely prostituted the sacrificial system of the Jews. There were still priests all throughout Israel, and there were people who were Essenes, they were aesthetics who were off somewhere in the wilderness. And there were these group of men who were called Pharisees. There were thousands of them all over Israel, and they were the keepers of the system. They defined the law of the elders, and they taught that in order to be right with God, you must keep their law, you must keep their tradition, their interpretation, their system, and they had substituted self-righteousness for faith. And see, no longer was it about grace, it was about tradition, no longer about faith, but about righteousness. And Jesus came into this world, and when Jesus came and he confronted them, he didn't accept what they taught. In fact, he was constantly in conflict with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the scribes and all the keepers of tradition. In the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, and 7, verse 17 of chapter 5, Jesus said, I did not come to do away 
with the law and the prophets. I didn't come to do away with the scriptures. So I came to fulfill it. The problem was with the Pharisees. He said, your righteousness has to be different than the Pharisees. It's not self-righteousness. You're not right because of what you do. He then, in the chapter 5 of the Matthew, the Sermon on the Mount, gave six examples of how the Pharisees had completely corrupted, completely lost sight of God. And Jesus constantly challenged them. And, and their whole issue was, what's the authority do you have to do this? Who gave you permission to come and challenge us, the keepers of the system? And here's what you need to see about Jesus and know about him. Back then and today, Jesus confronts and rejects our beliefs and our traditions in our systems. He confronts the things we create. He rejects them. He does it today, by the way. You know, as a devout Southern Baptist, I know there are certain things that we sort of create in our own little system. And if they're not of Jesus, he rejects it, no matter how good it may seem to us. So when you come to the Gospel of Luke, and you come, as I drop trash on the stage, as you come to the Gospel of Luke, in chapter 3, he is baptized by John the Baptist. He begins his ministry. And then in chapter 4, he goes off into the wilderness. And when he comes back from the wilderness, he begins his ministry, teaching. It's been a, it was begun at the baptism, and now he's teaching. He's, he's showing evidence of it. He goes to his hometown of Nazareth, goes to the synagogue, and he reads from the book of Isaiah, something that looks forward to the Messiah. And then he says, what you have heard is now fulfilled in your presence. I'm it. He says, I'm, I'm, I'm the Messiah. And of course, they reject him. They, they say, you're, you're, it can't be true. And so he leaves his home, and he just goes around, and he's preaching, and he's teaching all throughout the area around the Sea of Galilee. And so when chapter 5 comes, he calls a group of guys. He's been going at this for a little while, and there's, there's people who were kind of following him. So he calls some guys to really come follow him intently and be his disciples. He begins with four, Peter and Andrew and James and John. And then in chapter 5, verse 27, if we were to read on past our passage, he calls another guy named Matthew, Levi, a tax collector. But in between calling these men, Luke gives us the reason, the rationale that people would have to follow him. It shows him in one case healing a leper. But then it shows, Luke does, in verse 17 through verse 26, Jesus doing what only God could do. Verse 17, one day he was teaching and there were some Pharisees and teachers of the law sitting there who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present for him to perform healing. So Luke doesn't give a specific time. Mark and Matthew don't either. He was just, he was in his ministry early on, he was teaching. And Jesus had gotten the attention of the religious leaders. They weren't yet quite in conflict with them. It hadn't really developed yet to that point. So the Pharisees came, and the teachers of the law, the scribes, those guys came. And they came from all over. I mean, the Pharisees were everywhere. So the ones in Galilee came, and they're just there. They were coming from Jerusalem. I mean, the headquarters of the Jewish religious system is Jerusalem. So these were the Pharisees, the Pharisees. They're coming to this guy who was teaching. And it says, the power of the Lord was present, 
And he was uh, healing, he's curing people. The word heal or cure is a very generic term. It can be used of, you know, when your mom giving you something for an upset stomach, cured it, or it can be used of a miracle. It said, though, he had this power. The word power speaks of raw ability. He had this raw ability to do something. That was heal and cure. Verse 18 tells us this. And some men were carrying on a bed a man who was paralyzed. And they were trying to bring him in and to set him down in front of him. Now, Jesus was healing people and curing people. And folks were excited because this, this was unbelievable. And so there were a group of guys. Mark says there was four of them. And they had this buddy who was paralyzed. Now, the idea of him being paralyzed probably meant something had happened to him. And in our day and age, we would probably understand something happened to him to sever or to damage his spinal cord. And so he, he was paralyzed. It was impossible for him to walk. And back then, there was no medicine. There was no surgery. There was no therapy that would change that. So he was doomed to be paralyzed all his life. This is not like in Acts chapter 3 when Peter heals a man who was born lame, who couldn't walk, but he could still move. But he wasn't paralyzed. That was from birth. This guy, something happened and he was paralyzed. He had four friends who loved him. And they heard Jesus was doing stuff. So they said, maybe Jesus can do what no one else can. Maybe they can help our friend. And so they took this man, this cot, and they hauled him over to put him in front of Jesus. And verse 19 tells us, though, that there wasn't any room. They would find no way to bring him into the house because of the crowd. They went up on the roof, and they let him down through the tiles with the stretcher in the middle of the crowd in front of Jesus. This picture is actually kind of comical when you think about it. They, they couldn't get in. It was so crowded. It was probably a large house, probably half a wealthy man. And so like many of our homes today, like my house, the roof is flat. And uh, on it, there are tiles kind of for decoration. It was flat. And so like many houses, some of you may have it, there were stairs that led up to the top of the roof. And so these guys, pretty ingenious, they decided to take their paralyzed friend and haul him, none too delicately, upstairs to the roof. Now, if you're in the house, you have to understand you're hearing this going on. If you're the owner of the house, you hear people on your roof. I don't care who's teaching you want to know who's on your roof. You're probably sending people up there to figure out what's going on. And they somehow, some way, they figure out where Jesus is. This is incredible. And so they remove tile, and Mark tells us, they begin to punch a hole into the roof. Now, I don't know about you, but if someone's putting a hole in my house, in my roof, I'm going to be none too pleased about it. Because here's what's happening. There's plaster. There was made out of mud, kind of. There's dirt falling. I mean, it's falling on Jesus. It's falling on the Pharisees, the distinguished guys. The things are piling down, coming on these guys. Teaching's trying to go on. And they're just digging. They're talking. And finally, there's a slide goes through. And you can just see this one guy stick his head, his eye to the hole. Yeah, we got it. There he is. And without any care, they just tear this hole down. And they don't care what these people think. Two of them are going to jump down. So they can lower this guy in front of Jesus with dust flying everywhere. It's kind of a crazy scene. Get this. This is what's happening. There's turmoil. There's dust. There's these four guys and this paralyzed guy. And here is Jesus. In verse 20, this is what he says. Seeing their faith, he said, friend, your sins are forgiven you. It says he saw their faith. Whose faith? All five of them. Those four guys had faith, but the paralyzed guy had to have faith too. It's pretty risky for your reputation to go do all this. And he says, <clears throat> seeing the faith, they trust. Not that they have faith that Jesus is Savior, but they have faith that Jesus can do what only God can do. That's pretty cool faith. 
So he says, friend or man, your sins are forgiven. Now, they didn't come there to get their sins forgiven. They're probably like, we don't really care about having our sins forgiven. The idea of sin is the sin against God. Not just sin. It wasn't like the sin of breaking into the house. That wasn't the issue. It was their sin against God. Jesus saying, you're sinning against God. You're falling short of God has been forgiven. It's been released. Now, here's the thing you've got to understand. In that day and age, they believed that sins like paralysis, I mean, excuse me, conditions like paralysis were the results of sin. They believed somebody had to have sinned for God to do that to you. You ever know someone who believed that the condition of their life was God doing it to them because of something they had done? John chapter 9, there's a man who's born blind. The disciples asked Jesus, whose sin is this? Whose sin is responsible for that, his or his parents? Jesus said, none, but so that you may know the glory of God. See, Jesus didn't believe or buy into that. This guy was paralyzed because of sin, but he didn't correct it. He just sort of played along. So he just sort of went with it. Your sins are forgiven. Then verse 21, here's what we see. The scribes and the Pharisees began to reason, saying, who is this man who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? Now, the Pharisees, these are the keepers of the law, but these guys know their stuff. They're reasoning. They're thinking in their mind. The word in Greek is the word for dialogue. They're, they're talking amongst themselves back and forth in their mind. Maybe they whisper a little bit, whatever. But they ask the question, who is this? In the original Greek, the word man is not there. Who is this? That's the question. Who is this guy? He is slandering, insulting God. I mean, to be able to claim that you can do what only God can do is an insult to God. Who can forgive sins? Who can forgive sins against God but God alone? Let me tell you something. The Pharisees are right. I can forgive your sins against me. I can't forgive your sins against God. Only God can do that. And if I claim that I can forgive your sins against God, well, that is blasphemy. Now, I can, I can say God has forgiven you based on what we know about God, based on what God has revealed to us. I can say, well, I'm sure God has forgiven you. Yes, God has forgiven you, but I can't do the forgiven. Jesus is doing the forgiven. Here's the thing. This is so important. The ability to determine eternal outcomes belongs to God. The ability to determine eternal outcomes belongs to God. Salvation is eternal. Forgiveness of sin against God is an eternal outcome. Verse 22. But Jesus, <laughs> always but Jesus. Whenever you read but Jesus or but God, if you're on the other side of that but Jesus or God, you're in for it. Aware of their reasonings, answered and said to them, why are you reasoning in your hearts? Why, why are you thinking this way? He knew what was going on. Verse 23. Which is easier to say, your sins have been forgiven you, or to say, get up and walk? Well, obviously, it's easier to say your sins are forgiven because no one can prove you did or didn't do it. Only God can do it. But how do you prove whether or not their sins are forgiven? But if you say, get up and walk, they're going to have to get up and walk, aren't they? They're going to have to give some proof of that. So verse 24, here's what we see. But so, you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, get up, 
pick up your stretcher and go home. But so that, that phrase so that speaks to purpose. But this purpose, I want you to know something about the Son of Man. He's referring to himself as the Son of Man. He does that throughout scriptures. Now, there are people who say that Jesus, well, the term Son of Man relates back to the Old Testament, especially the book of Daniel, when it's, it's a claim of messianic purpose. I mean, in, in the Jewish world that time, the Son of Man was the Messiah. So Jesus is taking this claim upon himself. Some say that he's not doing that, that he's not taking that claim upon himself. But everybody who heard him would have understood that. So yeah, he's claimed to be the Messiah so that you know that I have the authority. The word authority doesn't mean raw ability like the word power. It means the right, the freedom. I get to do this because of who I am. That I have the authority to forgive sins. That I can do this. In other words, that I am God. That I'm the son of man. That I'm God. That I am that guy. He said, pick up your mat and go home. Just go. I say under his authority. And here's what we see in verse 25. Here's what happened. Immediately he got up before them, picked up what he'd been lying on, went home glorifying God. He went home praising God. The mat was the symbol of his paralysis. It was the symbol even of his sin. He picked it up. His buddies praised. They went off. Verse 26 says this. And they were all struck with astonishment and began glorifying God. And they were all filled with fear, saying, we have seen remarkable things. All of them, including the Pharisees, were all struck. It was amazing. They all praised God. The Pharisees even were doing this. They hadn't even rejected Jesus quite yet. They were doing this. They said, we have seen remarkable things. The word remarkable is cool. It's, in Greek, it's, it's the word paradoxa, paradox, our word paradox. You know what a paradox is? A paradox is when you have one dox, someone gives you another, you have a paradox. So, <laughs> I wanted the whole passage just so I could do that one joke. Holy Spirit wouldn't evolve or anything. A paradox is when something is illogical or, or something is true, but it can't be true. For instance, if I said to you, close your eyes and see, well, that's a paradox. If you close your eyes, you can't see, but yet, oftentimes, you know, when we have things around us and we close our eyes, well, I go, I wanted to pray. I close my eyes to blot things out so I could see, so I could perceive. That's a paradox. Here was a guy, human, it was Jesus, who did what only God could do. What would it take for them to follow Jesus? Jesus revealed that his authenticity was legitimate. He was authentic because he did what only God could do. So let me ask you the second question. And this is personal. What would it take for you to follow Jesus? What would it take? If you're not a follower of Jesus... What would it take for you to follow Jesus? I'm not saying what would it take for you to be Baptist. I don't care. I'm not asking what it would it take for you to be a part of a religious system. I'm not even asking what it would it take for you to believe the whole Bible. Well, I think you should, but I don't, I'm not concerned about that. What would it take to follow Jesus? Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, those four guys wrote about Jesus. They wrote the story about Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote within 30 years of Christ, of Christ ascending. 30 years. I mean... If they just made stuff up like they're often accused of doing, or just pull stuff out of the air, don't you think they knew that there'd be people around who would question that? Luke especially did all this interviewing. We'll see this next week when I preach about Luke chapter 1. He went everywhere talking to people. I mean, he got his info. If he wrote what was false, people would have called him out on it. I mean, 30 years ago, 1991. I mean, you think about it. You know, the Cowboys are winning Super Bowls. You know, I know it's hard to believe, but... If you're going to write about the Cowboys winning Super Bowls, you can't make that up. 
people to call in to question. And these guys wrote these amazing things about Jesus. John wrote a little bit later, about 30 years later, but John was an eyewitness. He was the last of the apostles. I mean, he knew his stuff. Nobody questions whether John wrote it. And I realize it's popular for people to say, well, these guys didn't write it. It was written much later. There's never any evidence to ever show that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote their Gospels, that they didn't write their Gospels, that someone wrote it in the second century. In fact, all the evidence is just the opposite. It shows these guys are legit. They're the real thing. They're authentic. Here's the thing you need to know. The Gospel writers tell of a man who did things no one had ever done before. Nor has anyone done since. Matthew, Mark, and Luke said there was a man whose back was broken and he couldn't walk. And nobody on the face of this earth could heal him. No one has ever been able to speak and to heal. I know. Today, it's amazing that you can do surgery sometimes. And physical therapy sometimes to help a paralyzed person walk. That happens. And we should be thankful for that. But no doctor believes that they can just speak and the person's healed. No, 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 no. Only Jesus could do that. John tells of a time when Jesus brought a dead man back to life. Three times Jesus raised someone who was dead. But two of those times, they had just died. And so you could argue maybe, maybe they weren't fully dead. Even the guy, the kid on the the, the funeral briar, maybe, but... Lazarus and John 11 had been dead for four days. His body was rotting. And Jesus did what only God could do. He brought him back to life. The Pharisees were so angry that he did that, that they wanted to kill Lazarus all over again, just to hide all that evidence. I mean, think about it. Jesus did what only God could do. If Jesus did what Luke and the other gospel writers claimed, that he is the real deal. He is the authentic Savior. If Jesus did what they said he did, well, why wouldn't you trust him? If he can do what only God can do, wouldn't that make him God? In Luke chapter 23, Jesus is on the cross. And there are two other guys with him. They are called thieves, but they were murderers. In fact, Jesus took the place of a third. And those two guys are doing what they always did when people were crucified. They are cursing and screaming, and and they're calling down every kind of blasphemy they can think of and curse they can think of on their tormentors and the people crucifying them. They're even cursing Jesus. And they're suffering and struggling in the torture. And then at some point along the way, one of them, this kind of comes to his senses, and, and he looks at Jesus and realizes something. Jesus isn't doing that. I mean, they, they taunted Jesus. They didn't taunt those guys. They were taunting Jesus. Do miracles. Come off the cross. Prove you are truly the Son of God. And Jesus didn't do anything. In fact, the only thing Jesus did in response to that was to say, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. See, the only thing Jesus did was what God would do. He forgave, because nobody else was going to forgive guys who were torturing them to death. And he began to realize that Jesus wasn't like them, that maybe he really was son of God. And so he said, Jesus, when you come into your kingdom, remember me. That is the worst faith statement you will find in all of Scripture.
just remember me. And Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. Jesus promised him that he would do for him what only God can do. Why wouldn't Jesus do for you what he did for the thief or what he did for the paralyzed man or for Lazarus? Not heal your back or raise you from the dead. But why wouldn't he forgive your sin? Why wouldn't he save you if you but ask him to do that? Jesus will do in your life what only he can do. He will forgive you and save you. All you have to do is ask him. So what would it take for you to follow Jesus? Jesus did everything that needs to be done. He went on a cross, died for our sins, and God raised him back to life. He did all the things that only God can do for you and me so that we might trust him to save us. So if you've never trusted Christ to be your savior, why don't you? Why don't you do that now? What, what more do you want? He did everything that needed to be done. So why don't you ask him to forgive you for your sins right now? Because he'll do it right this second. And why don't you ask him to save you right now? He will do it. Why don't you do what Peter, James, and John, and Andrew, and Levi did? Why don't you follow Jesus? If you would like to talk to someone about following him, you can. You can do it right where you are, but I'm going to be here, and Joe will be here. And I think there may be a, a lady or two, hopefully, if you want to talk to a woman who may be here. And if you want to talk to someone about what it means to follow Jesus, you can do that. You can come and say, I want to know what it takes. But I can tell you right now, all you've really got to do is just follow him. Just to give your life to him. So why don't you do that today? Why don't you meet the authentic Jesus and experience what only Jesus can do, which is save your life? Father, as we come together today to praise you and to honor you and to worship you. We need to thank you for Jesus coming into this world that rejected him, coming into a world that despised him, and coming into a world full of people who needed him, and he loved us. Father, when we get to the point in our life where we realize there's no one else can help us. We should realize there is one. There's Jesus. Jesus, who did what only God can do because he's God. He was God in the flesh. So help us today be able to trust him with our life. To ask him to forgive us and save us. And however we do that, whether it's with the faith of a guy being lowered through the roof or the faith of a guy on the cross or just faith in our own words. Help us trust Jesus to save us. And I pray this in his name. Amen. Would you stand and you come and we'll greet you.